The Building Better Business podcast is the best place to learn how to take your business to the next level. It's no longer enough to earn good profits. You need to develop a network of connections as well as use all types of marketing to your advantage that will put you over the edge. Hosted by me, Steve Eschbach, a financial executive with decades of experience in dealing with businesses and business people, we'll learn how this all comes together. Join me and my expert guests as we delve into the many facets of owning the business and how to become a good, caring business owner. Listen how making a difference in your community can attract all sorts of clientele, which in turn will build you a better business. Greetings of the day, my fellow listeners, and welcome to another edition of Building Better Businesses. I am your host, Steve Eschbach. Uh, I am the owner of Transworld Business Advisors of Naperville, Illinois. We're just 40 miles outside of downtown Chicago. I'm one of about five or six uh, Transworld owners. Transworld is a mergers and acquisitions firm that specializes in assisting sellers, confidentially sell their businesses, and we match them up with qualified buyers. In this ever-changing world that we find ourselves in, I am getting contacted by quite a few on the other side, meaning that buyers are contacting me looking for acquisitions and uh, finding sell-side targets. So right now, it's almost a, a balanced mix between buyers and sellers that I represent. And this podcast series is designed to assist you, our listeners, uh, take away some nuggets on how to make a uh, build a better business, if you will. And I'm delighted to have Ari Mizell with me today, who is the founder of uh, LessDoing.com, which I find to be a phenomenal name of a company. And uh, we're going to learn a little bit more about his story. So first of all, Ari, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, tell us a little bit about where you are today. Uh, thanks for having me, Steve. I am currently in Brooklyn, New York, but that's not where I live. I live in Princeton, New Jersey, and we made that move fairly recently. So my kids still go to school in Brooklyn. So we've been commuting uh, every day, me and four kids at you know 6.30 in the morning. Fortunately, I am in my new Tesla Y model, which has autopilot, and I'm not driving right now, but it's been very helpful to have that. So <laughs> this is the, uh, the quietest spot I could find for the moment. All right. So Ari, you bring tears to my eyes because my roots are in Brooklyn, New York, even though I live in Chicago. So every so often I get the yearning for New York bagels and New York style pizza. And I'm not going to trash the Chicago deep dish pizza here, but there's nothing like a great New York pizza, particularly in Brooklyn, New York. But anyway, so tell us a little bit about what it is that you do. I think you are a productivity coach. Uh, so my guess is that you're assisting others. And uh, I like the title of your lessdoing.com entity because I think we all would like to get more out of what we do in less time. So tell us a little bit about who you are today and uh, how you help your clients. So what I do is I help entrepreneurs become more replaceable. And it's uh, an interesting term for people initially. And really what that's about is creating systems and processes to replace what you do well, teaching proper delegation, outsourcing, and automating the things that we can. So the original framework was called Less Doing, and that was about optimizing, automating, and outsourcing everything that you do in your life. And eventually that grew into more of a business-focused methodology, which is called the replaceable founder. And that's where a lot of the... That's where a lot of the focus is now, I'd say, but there's a really good mix of sort of the the personal and the business because it's very hard to separate the two when you're an entrepreneur. So I do private coaching for the most part. I have a couple 
courses that I sell, but I do private coaching with some very, very high level entrepreneurs and some corporate people as well. I've worked in pretty much every industry and every size company you can think of. And it's a lot of fun. I basically help people get out of their own way and operate more efficiently. Did I see some names like NASA and Google in the client list that you have or some of them like that? Yeah, NASA, Google, the U.S. Army, Tony Robbins, you know, there's, there's been all, a few. There are, those are all prominent names in terms of being successful businesses. So you use the term, the replaceable founder, and I can't believe that you are coaching people so that they can go away and no longer be involved whatsoever. I'm going to paraphrase and tell me if I'm correct. So what you're trying to do is assist entrepreneurs be able to run their businesses without having to roll up their sleeves and get their involvement in every aspect of the business. I think that's what you're saying. But if I've got that wrong, please correct me. No, that's a pretty good treatment of it. And the key word in what you just said is have to, right? So I'm not trying to replace anybody necessarily, but I want to make them more replaceable and everybody in the organization, by the way, more replaceable. And we want to replace people up, not out. And the, the truth is, is that when a founder or an you know, entrepreneur starts a business, there's something very unique about that. But very quickly, they stop being unique because within a few weeks or a month or two, you know, they start doing all the things that every other entrepreneur does and wearing all the hats and you know, putting out fires and all the buzzwords and all the ridiculous things that we tell ourselves entrepreneurs are supposed to do. And they're no longer unique. And that's a hard pill to swallow, especially for somebody who's been in business for you know, a decade or more, that more often than not, they're the biggest barrier to their business's growth. You know, it's funny you mentioned that, Ari, because many years ago, I did corporate executive work for a better part of 30 years before I became an entrepreneur, although I did have that spirit in me growing up uh, and in my corporate life. But I asked one of my supervisors what my job is. And his response to me is, Steve, your job is to train your replacement. And I thought that was kind of weird because why would I want to train someone to do it I do. And he said, Steve, if you want to move up, you need to have someone fill your shoes. So if you want to move up in this uh, in this organization, you need to find someone to take your spot. Is that kind of uh, what you're saying, too, for the entrepreneur? Yeah, in many cases, because what we ultimately want entrepreneurs to have is freedom. But that's that's a concept that is thrown around far too often and not very well explained oftentimes, because there's two kinds of freedom something called the liberty paradox. So there's freedom from and freedom to. Most people, when they talk about freedom, they're in their mind about thinking about freedom from, meaning freedom from the nine to five, freedom from the debt, freedom from the bad partnership, whatever it might be. It's a negative liberty. You're trying to escape something. But what we ultimately want, what I ultimately want for the entrepreneurs that I work with is to have the freedom to, and in many cases, that means the freedom to leave, which doesn't mean leave forever. And if anything, what it allows them to do is leave and explore and discover and then bring those things back into the business as contributions without the business crumbling in their absence. Yeah, I'm going to take that one other step, and I'm sure you can comment on this. But I think what you're saying is that some entrepreneurs are better at business development. They can do the nuts and bolts of what they need to get the job done. But their their preference is to go out and bring more clients in that they can take care of. So they basically can go out and represent the company at a high level, convince them that they're the entity to work with, and they have a trained staff. A reputable staff to do the actual uh, day-to-day work. Is that kind of what you're saying too? That's certainly a part of it. Yeah, for sure. But you know, what happens a lot of times is that you have 
two kinds of entrepreneurs for the most part. And there's crossover sometimes, but you have entrepreneurs and, and actually business people in general who just really like business. They like growing businesses, buying businesses, selling businesses, you know, developing them. They just like businesses. And then you have the other kind that like the actual work. So they really like wills and trusts, you know, or they really like designing new car, whatever it might be. They actually like the work, but a lot of times you don't have both and they get confused because what happens is that they, you have somebody who likes growing a business and maybe they're doing life-changing work. Like they're, they're developing vaccines or they're delivering food to areas of the world that need it, but they're not really passionate about the work itself. They just like growing the business, which is fine, but they start losing that fulfillment and they don't know why. And then they get bored and then entrepreneurs tend to create problems when they're bored. Yeah, what you're saying sounds familiar. I worked at a company with travelers, I believe, that had two tracks for their professionals. One was leadership and one was operational excellence. So if you wanted to maintain your uh, presence in the day-to-day role, we'd sent you on that track. And if you wanted to kind of go up and lead the organization, we sent you on another track. So I get what you're saying there. I'm going to take a moment, Ari, if you don't mind. I want to rewind the videotape and talk a little bit about you and your childhood and how your parents and your family had an influence on where you are today. And I know you had a situation happen in your early 20s that kind of changed course a little bit. And that definitely demonstrates your ability to embrace change. So that's a very powerful question. So childhood, development, parental influence, family influence, your event that changed your life and where you are today. So that story is now yours. So go ahead. So I'm an only child and I grew up in Soho in Manhattan, right? So for people who aren't familiar, I know you are, but for people who aren't familiar, it's the, I guess, the original sort of loft district in the U.S. And so I grew up in what was an old chocolate factory, this big loft in a neighborhood that was not really developed as a residential neighborhood for the most part of the time. And my father was an art dealer and with his own gallery. And my mother was an artist and then later a real estate broker. So they were both entrepreneurs and very different very different people, very different parents, and really interesting statistic that the National Foundation for Teaching Entrepreneurship put out a long time ago was that 70-something percent of young entrepreneurs come from households where the father was physically or emotionally absent, and the mother was controlling slash overbearing. So I've got a, a Jewish mother, enough said, and my father was completely emotionally absent. He was always there, but completely emotionally absent. So you could sort of connect the dots there, why that psychologically might drive somebody to become an entrepreneur and create their own sort of thing that they need to work on. So I started my first company when I was 12, which was website design. And then I started two more before I graduated high school. And I was busy and I was keeping myself busy and I was doing all sorts of interesting things and working for some really interesting clients at the time. I was doing technology consulting. I started a company called menus2go.com, which was a precursor to menu pages and I guess eventually food.com. And then I went to college, even though I didn't want to. I really was looking at joining the Navy to become a naval aviator and basically was convinced to apply to one school, which I did. And I applied to the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School, and I got in. Uh, While I was there, I ended up graduating a year early with two majors and two minors. So I majored in real estate and entrepreneurship. And then I minored in art history and psychology. So really weird mix, but it worked. And then this was 2003, so 99% of my classmates from Warden were going into finance jobs at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and, J- and all those companies. And I 
went into construction. So I basically got out. I went to visit a friend in upstate New York in a place called Binghamton, which is a very depressed real estate market. And while I was there, he's like, oh, you got to see these old buildings. It was just like Soho 30 years ago, these 1860s cigar warehouses. And I was 20 years old and walked in and saw these beautiful, big brick, empty spaces and said to myself, I think I could build lofts here. And I made an offer to buy the buildings that day, very, very cheap. And I was able to get a big line of credit from a local bank because it was a big project for the town at the time. And then, of course, realized that an Ivy League degree in real estate development doesn't teach you how to build anything. So the deal was that anybody who worked on the job had to teach me their trade. So I spent the next three years learning and doing every construction trade there is. I was on the job at five in the morning every day. I was running a team of 60 people. I was in the TV and print media two or three times a week and crash course in media training, if there ever was one. I got nominated to the, I was the chairman of the architectural review board for the entire city of Binghamton when I was 21. And it was wild and the legal as things I was learning and zoning and politics. Um, I have a video of Hillary Clinton as a senator thanking me for the work that I had done for the town. Like it was insane unbelievably formative time in my life. And when I was 23, I had amassed $3 million of personal debt. I was eating fast food two times a day, smoking cigarettes, smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, drinking under an enormous amount of stress. And at 23, I got diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Crohn's is a chronic inflammatory condition that affects the digestive tract. It's considered to be incurable and it's very debilitating. And I got really sick really quick and was put on a lot of medicine, which made me worse in a lot of ways in the short term. And after hitting a particularly bad point in the hospital one night, I decided that I had to do something different. I went on this long journey of self-tracking and self-experimentation and was able to overcome the illness to the point that now, I guess it's almost 12 years now, free of it, which I led on, led me to do a TEDx talk on the process that I'd gone through. And then I eventually went on to compete in Ironman France, which is something I could never even consider doing previously because I was so sick and weak. Along the way, I still had this big debt to clear and business to run, and I hadn't sold a single unit yet. I was debilitated. I was starting a new relationship with a woman who's now my wife and mother of my four children. And the productivity systems that existed at the time were not serving me. And what I ultimately was faced with was this shift of working 18 hours a day and now finding myself in a situation where an hour a day was the best I could hope for. And asking myself, what would you do if you can only work an hour a day? And it's something that I ask clients to this day, because if you ask somebody who works a nine to five, what would you do if you left the office at four? If you had to leave the office by four, most of the time they just say they'd skip lunch. But if you ask that same person, what would you do if you only had an hour a day? It's puzzling, right? Because it requires such a different way of thinking, because at that point, the question is not, what would you do? It's what wouldn't you do? And if the things that you wouldn't do still had to get done, then who or what is going to do them for you? And so I developed a new system of productivity, which still is quite counterintuitive, I think, to what many other systems teach. And very fortunately, I've been able to turn that into 12 books and speaking on four continents and coaching thousands or hundreds of people. Well, yeah, coaching thousands at this point and hundreds of companies in every possible industry. And then I got on the... Steve Eschbach's podcast, and here I am. <laughs> so um, I'm going to summarize that as what I would gather as key takeaways. So, so basically, you had to surround yourself 
given the situation that you have, you're not going to let the disease conquer you. You're going to conquer the disease. And clearly that's evident because now you are married, you have four kids, and you have a system and a coaching uh, business that's helping others to do what you do. But I think what I get out of what you just said is that you develop systems to assist you and you surround yourself with people that could assist you do what you needed to get done. And am I kind of right in saying that? Yep. And I think many entrepreneurs are, are, are going down the wrong course. They think they've got to do any and everything to get it done. When in fact, collaborative effort, teamwork, and giving the duties and responsibilities to the subject matter expert actually probably creates more of a one plus one equals three. Is that kind of what you're saying there, Ari? Yeah, there's a, absolutely a multiplier effect to working in this fashion. But the, the really important thing, just to frame what you just said, which is correct, but delegation and outsourcing really needs to be the last step. And that's something that a lot of people miss and get wrong uh, because it's easier to have that sort of knee-jerk reaction and be like, oh, I don't want to do this thing. It's too hard. I don't want to do it. I'm going to hire somebody to do it and push it off. But the problem is what you end up taking an inefficient issue, handing it off to somebody who has less context and less information than you do. And then at the same time, when you do it, you're expecting a more successful result than you were going to achieve yourself. And you're basically setting everyone up for failure. So that's why that framework of OAO exists the way it does. Optimize first, automate second, outsource last. I have outsourced thousands and thousands of hours and dollars of things while constantly trying to avoid outsourcing. No, I get it. I get it clearly. Uh, and that's the right path to take because uh, if you're going to delegate to someone, you expect them to do what you think is the best way to do it. And they really don't have an understanding of exactly how to do it the way you do it. Then you're not making things better. You may, in fact, be making things worse, I would think. Typically. Yeah. So in terms of your business, so tell me about uh, your team. We talked a little bit about you. We talked about you have influence with other people. What is your your team? Is it just you and you have outsourced people? Is it you and you have employees? How does you how do you run your business? So it's changed quite a bit over the years. So I, I need to give you sort of a, a slightly larger story to explain the answer to that properly. I had a virtual assistant company for a couple of years where I had a team of 180 people, 17 time zones, and was running that very effectively. And that was really fun. And then I left that company and came back to less doing. And that was about three, four years ago now, I'd say almost, yeah, four years ago. And at the time I had a team of seven that were in-house and then probably 150 plus outsourced contractors at the time, doing everything from content to marketing, uh, research, customer service, all sorts of things. So about Six months ago, almost six months ago now, I effectively shut down operations of less doing. And it was a true evolution and a progression. And the the short story of sort of what led to it is that 10 years ago, while I was going through this process of healing, I became an EMT because I wanted to learn more about the body. And also, I don't know, it's just something how that somehow that fit. And I've been a volunteer EMT for 10 years now. And over the last several months, especially, you know, with the pandemic, I got very, very active. We basically were in the Hudson Valley at a house there for most of the pandemic and with my family. And I had the opportunity to join the local fire department and be one of three EMTs for the whole town. And it was amazing. And I saw everything. And I had a pager on my belt. I was on 24-7. Call came in, I'd get up and go. And the unique thing for me in this scenario, because it was the fourth department that I've been a part of over the years, 
was because it was a smaller town and because there were so few EMTs, for the first time in my life, I had repeat patients to the point that because most of EMS, especially in busy systems, you know, you see somebody once, you help them out, you leave and you kind of forget about it and move on. So there was one patient that I ended up going to their house something like six times over the course of two or three weeks or two or three months. And it wasn't ever anything serious per se. There were some underlying conditions, but there was never any like major accident or anything. It just needed some assistance. And to the point where, you know, I'd walk in and the husband would be like, oh, hey, Ari, you know, she's back there. So like, it was very familial. And we had a pager system that was on our phone. So I was down in Brooklyn again, because we were getting the kids back in school at that point. And I saw a call come in for this particular patient's residence. And uh, the information that you get from the dispatcher is kind of surprisingly, people don't realize this, but it's actually very bad information usually, what 911 gives you from the dispatch. But that's also because the person usually giving it is in a panic, like the whole thing. Anyway, long story short, it looked to me from the information I was getting as if this patient had died. And for the first time ever in my experience as an AMT, it like tugged at me. It tugged at my heartstrings a little bit because normally you kind of compartmentalize and just you work. It, it happens. I've had several patients die. It's part of the process. And a few minutes later, my BOO sent me a message sort of com- like she was complaining, not complaining. She was concerned about something that was happening with the business that was typical for her because she's very detail oriented. I'm not. And something in that moment just sort of clicked for me. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, I had created the ultimate experiment in the replaceable founder where I had really not been needed in my company. But what I ultimately did was distance myself from the thing that I loved so much, which was coaching and dealing with people. So in about six hours, I basically came up with a plan to shut down the company, disband the team and go back to private coaching. So for the last six months, I have had one very, very, very part-time person helping me with a few little things. It's effectively just me at this point. I am doing one-on-one coaching with 20 clients and I don't have a single call on my calendar because I do it in a very special way. Uh, There's a tool, an app called Voxer, which is a voice communication app that is an asynchronous communication tool. And I do coaching exclusively over Voxer. So what that means is that I have, like I said, 20 clients, not a single call scheduled. Several of them I speak to every single day, even for a few minutes at a time. And the results have been more effective than any kind of coaching I've ever done. And I've figured out a way basically to scale one-on-one coaching in a way that allows me to run a very sustainable business with next to zero cost. I'm able to get up at five in the morning to bring my kids here to school in Brooklyn and spend the day doing whatever I need to do, creating content, recording podcasts, writing blog posts, I need to do coaching these clients and still go home and, you know, build a fence or whatever it is I need to do and be an EMT and be a woodworker and have the most fulfilling life I could possibly have while still helping lots and lots of people. All right. That's a fantastic story. And I wish we had more time to explore that. In fact, I want to take your last concept and take that to another 20 or 30 minutes. But unfortunately, we don't have that time. But you demonstrated a clear expertise on willingness to learn, learning what you had to learn, being able to figure this all out. Unfortunately, you had a health situation that caused that to accelerate and probably 
you were able to perfect that. I mean, there's a ton of stuff in there that we can go on and on. But I don't have any more questions for you, but is there anything in this conversation that we might not have touched that you want your our audience to know about? So the, the biggest thing is I, I sort of just mentioned it with the coaching, but asynchronous communication, if I could leave you guys with one sort of productivity tip, like that is the more that you can do asynchronous. And just to be clear, that's the opposite of what Steve and I are doing right now. There's certain situations where synchronous makes sense, but there's a lot where you can do things asynchronously, which means communicating on your time and on their time, which means you're going to get people at their best and the most effective. And so I'd really challenge your listeners to look at the meetings and interactions that they have and think about, could this have been done asynchronously, whether it's voice, video, text, whatever it might be, and really using that to your advantage. And anybody can go to voxwithre.com and vox me. And I love talking about it and how this works. So, Well, that's a phenomenal concept. And I appreciate you sharing that with our, uh, with our listeners. Last thing, where can we find out more about you, Ari? Everythingthelessdoing.com, books, the podcast, the program, everything. But again, as I said, voxwithari.com. If you want to get directly to me, it's not an assistant, it's not an automation, it's actually me. And I love having conversations about this stuff. That sounds so good. I appreciate you sharing this, Ari. And listeners, thank you for joining us again. Uh, there'll be more additions down the road and uh, hope you're taking away some of these nuggets that are going to help you build a better business. Thanks so much. The Building Better Business podcast is the best place to learn how to take your business to the next level. It's no longer enough to earn good profits. You need to develop a network of connections as well as use all types of marketing to your advantage that will put you over the edge. Hosted by me, Steve Eschbach, a financial executive with decades of experience in dealing with businesses and business people, we'll learn how this all comes together. Join me and my expert guests as we delve into the many facets of owning the business and how to become a good, caring business owner. Listen how making a difference in your community can attract all sorts of clientele, which in turn will build you a better business.